John chapter 4, and we've been talking about this for months now, but I want to focus on a particular part of this. We're going to pick up here starting in verse 21. This is Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers, and that's what we're talking about, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is searching, seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. We've been talking over the last several months about in verse 23 where it says the Father is seeking such to worship Him. And we've looked at that desire. We've seen, traced it through the Old Testament. And last week we ended up in, we've seen God's desire was expressed in Jesus. And we ended up last week, and this is what we'll pick up this week. But God's now put that within us, the ability to commune with Him and to fellowship with Him and to worship Him as a as a as a satisfaction of the desire that he has. And so that's what we're going to pick up with this week. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Last week we've talked about we've talked about God dwelling in a tabernacle with Moses, God dwelling in the temple of Solomon. And then we've talked about God dwelling in Jesus on the earth and walk, God walked around on the earth in Jesus. And then last week we began to talk about the next phase, and we're looking at that today, is that God says, I'm not satisfied being in one place at one time, which is what he was in Jesus. But I want to be in you. I don't want to be with you. I want to be in you. Ephesians chapter 3 is Paul's prayer. He's praying this for Christians who already have God in them through the Spirit, but he's praying for them to become aware of what God has done in them. And what we're going to talk about today, God's already done in you if you're in Christ. If you've given your life to Christ, if you've called upon Him to be your Savior and your Lord, and you've given your life, what we're going to talk about has already been done in you. The problem isn't not that it's not been done in us. The problem is we don't understand and have not accepted the fullness of what God has done in us. And so that's why Paul begins this letter to the Corinthians, to the Ephesians by asking God to open the eyes of their understanding that they may see the hope of their call, his calling for their lives that's in Christ Jesus. And this is his second prayer in this, in this letter. He's praying what's going to start in verse 14. Ephesians 3.14 For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named that he would grant you according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So what, God is, what Paul is praying God to do requires this Holy Spirit to strengthen us in the inner man with power in order to do this. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. We looked last week that the word dwell means to actually come down and take up residence in. Dwell in you through faith, being rooted and grounded in love. You may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height. In other words, the extent and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. So it's beyond your mind's ability to grasp. 
In fact, what we're going to see in a minute is when you get to the end of what your mind can grasp, that's when God begins to work. And to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, human knowledge. So this is not something you can understand with your mind. It's something that's grasped with your heart and your spirit. That you may be, this is what we want to look at, that you may be filled, that you may be filled, filled means there's no room left over. There's no empty spots. That you, sitting in your blue chair right now, with all the issues in your life and all the weaknesses that you may have and all the things you know that may not measure up and be just right now, that you, because the Ephesian church was just like you and me, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. God wasn't satisfied to be among us in a man, Jesus. God's desire and His passion could only be satisfied when He could be not with you, but in you. And not just in you, but fill you up with Himself. All right. And that's where we left off last week. Now let's go to John chapter 14. We talked about these things, but I want to read them. Again, as we mentioned last week, Jesus here is preparing His disciples for a change that's about to take place. Up until this point, for about three and a half years, God has dwelt among them in Jesus, and now that's going to change. He's going to the cross. He will walk among them for about another 40 or 40, 50 days, and then He's going to physically leave them, and He's not going to come back again until He comes back for His church. And we're in that gap period right now. And so he's preparing them for this, and there's a number of things he says that are critical, but we're going to look in verse 7 because it talks about what we're talking about here. Jesus says, If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus said, Wait a minute, have I, have I not been with you so long, and yet you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, so how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, Philip, you don't get it yet. You don't get it yet. The Father is here with you in me. So if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you believe, not believe me, verse 10, that I am, and this is how you've seen him, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. All the miracles Jesus did. We talked about the background of that last week. How Jesus, we saw in Philippians chapter 2, that when he, was, when he left heaven to be con born in, and to conceive in Mary's womb, he laid aside all of his glory that he had as the second person of the Godhead. He laid all his power, all his dominion, all his authority. He laid all, all aside every attribute he had except his holiness. And he was born as a baby in, out of her womb in Bethlehem. 
And we saw how he grew in wisdom and understanding that he didn't do any miracles until he was 30 years of age and he went to the Jordan River to be baptized the baptism of repentance by John the Baptist. And when he did that, heaven opened up the, the Spirit of God descended in on him in physical form and God spoke out of heaven and said, that's my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Then the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When he finished the temptations after 40 days, it says the Spirit, he returned in the power of the Spirit. And that's what the church has lacked. Paul says to the church at Corinth, I did not come to you with enticing words of human wisdom. Paul could have. He was bright and highly educated. But I determined to come to you in the demonstration and the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there's only one Spirit. And so Jesus did His miracles he, everything he did that, was, that had the power and the glory and the majesty of God, he did not do as the Son of God in his own nature. He simply did it as the vessel in which God's Spirit dwelt. And I told you last week, Jesus was a prototype of what you and I are supposed to be. Because he was a Son of God filled with the Spirit. And what are you? You are a son of God or daughter of God, and hopefully you've been filled with His Spirit. And so Paul here is praying in Ephesians, saying that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. And Jesus is saying, Philip, don't you understand? When you've seen me, the things that I did, when I spoke to the storm, when I did the miracles, when I raised the dead, you weren't seeing me, you were seeing the Father doing these works in me. All right. Verse 11. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you that he who believes in me, now he's talking to you and me, the works that I do will he do also, and greater works will he do because I go to the Father. He's saying to him, the same things I've done, you will do. He doesn't say to you 11 disciples. He says to those who believe in me. Because if this was just directed to the disciples, why do we need it in here? then we're just listening in on a 2,000-year-old conversation that really doesn't mean anything as far as we're concerned. Because they came, they lived, they performed their miracles, and then they went on to be with Him, and those miracles have gone on. So what does this matter to us if this does not apply to us? But it does. Because He says, He who believes in Me, the works that I do shall he do also. Verse 13, and whatever you ask in my name, in my place, that I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. Look at this. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. And we looked last week, another means a replacement that's just like the one you've had. In other words, what I have been to you, 
because I'm leaving, I'm going to ask the Father and He's going to send a replacement for me who's just like me. That He may abide with you forever because Jesus was leaving, but the one He's sending is going to abide with you forever. And who is it? Just in case there's any doubt, it's the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. You know this Spirit. Why? For He he dwells now with you. How does He dwell with them? He dwelt with them in Jesus. But He will be in you. So the one that's been with you in me, by whom God did all these miracles, is now going to be not with you, but in you. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Go over to verse 23. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and the Father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode, our home in him. Chapter 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. The church is trying to bear fruit on our own. By our own effort, by our own strength, by our own programs. That's not what Jesus told us to do. What He told us to do is abide in Him. As the branch abides in the vine. How does a branch abide in the vine? It stays vitally connected. And while it's vitally connected, the life force of that vine, the sap, the nutrition, and the life force of that vine flows up through the the trunk of that because the vines in, the east, in Palestine were not these things that grow up the side of your house. They were big, thick trunks. Grows up through, the, through the, 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 the trunk of this vine and grows out through the branch. And it is that life force that flows out through the branch that produces the fruit at the other end of the branch. So it's not the branch that produces the fruit. It's the sap the life force that comes through the roots and up through the, through the trunk and flows out through the, through the branch, that produces it. But that can only happen if the branch is vitally connected, is abiding in the vine, not near it, not in the vicinity of it. There has to be a living connection by which that life force flows from the, the vine into the branch. So what Jesus is telling his disciples, there's two ends to the branch. And he's telling them, don't focus on the fruit end, which is what most of us are doing. We're examining how much fruit we're bearing and comparing the fruit we bear to other people. And we're either feeling good about ourselves or not so good about ourselves. And we're not called to evaluate other people's fruit in this sense of whether they're good branches or not good branches, he tells us we're supposed to be focused on the other end. We're supposed to be looking at the end of the branch and seeing how well connected to the vine every day we are. Because you see, if the branch is connected to the vine, the vine will produce the fruit 
through. If we're filled with all the fullness of God, how can He not produce fruit through us? Filled with all the fullness of God. The passion of God's heart is you be filled with Him. And you can tell when a believer is filled with the fullness of God because there's a window that shows it. It's called your face. When we walk around, brother, you don't know how hard it is. Brother, you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know what the devil's doing in my life. Pray for me. You don't know the devil's after me. Does that sound like filled with all of the fullness of God? I'm telling you, when you know you're filled and you're filled and overflowing, everything looks differently from you. Just as it looked differently to them because Jesus was with them. Once He was in them, it looked differently to them too. They turned the world upside down. Not they but God in them did it. All right, we got to move on because we'll get to where we need to get to today. All right. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Notice what bears the fruit? If you abide in me. For without me, some translations say, apart from me, you can't do much. That's not what it says. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the Greek word for nothing means no thing. <laughs> nothing. Not a little bit. Not good try. Not better than... Not, not better than... You can do nothing if we're not abiding in Him. Oh, we can do all kinds of things that look good to other people that look like we're accomplishing things, but we're looking at this from God's perspective, what matters to Him. Like in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, there are some people that are going to come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in Your name. We did all kinds of miracles in Your name. And Jesus said, I'm going to look at you and say, I never knew you. They did wonderful, produced fruit. But the key to that verse is Jesus, depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. In other words, you did things for me, but you did what you wanted to do. You did what you thought was right. You didn't submit what I put in you for my purposes. Lawlessness means I do what I want to do. Isn't that what they did in the garden? Okay. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will done, be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. The fruit he's talking about here is answered prayer. John 16, verse 5, but now I'm going away to him who sent me. And none of you ask me where you're going. Because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go. 
For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. It's to their advantage because up until now he's been with them. But if he goes, he's going to ask the Father and the Father's going to send him to be in them. To be filled with all of the fullness of God. And when he comes, verse 8, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. That's his job, not yours. Of sin because they don't believe in me. Of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. However, he, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. Not the lottery number that's going to hit next week. (laughs) For he will glorify me. See, that wouldn't glorify him. He will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said he will take of mine and declare it to you. John 17. Verse 20. I don't pray for these alone. That's the disciples. Jesus is talking to his Father. He's been talking to his Father about his disciples. Now he's going to talk about us. I don't pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you and me. What is his prayer? That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given to them. How did he give them to them? By the Holy Spirit coming in them. So the Holy Spirit brings the glory of God that used to dwell over the Ark of the Covenant, that used to dwell over the, in, the, in, the, in David's tabernacle, that used to dwell in the, in the, um, in the, in the Temple of Solomon that dwelt in the earth in Jesus is to dwell in us. The glory of God so that He may be glorified. Because the world can't see His glory unless they see Him shining out of you and me. So my question for me and for you is what kind of advertisement are we of His glory? You understand his plan hinges on this? We're his advertisement. 2 Corinthians 5 puts it another way. Say, you're ambassadors for Christ. We're his representatives. But we're not ambassadors of some distant kingdom. It is a distant kingdom, but that kingdom is within us. And it's to shine out of us. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, 2, till we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That word transformed literally means to take what God put on the inside and to bring it to the outside. Because if it's only on the inside, nobody else can see it. But when it begins to show up on the outside, the rest of that verse says, so that you might prove, demonstrate, advertise what is the good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. 
We're not to advertise it in our strength. We're to advertise it by being vessels filled with his presence. 1 Corinthians 6 says, don't you know, we'll look at it later on, you are the temple of the Holy Ghost. Don't you know who your, what your body is? It's the temple. Just as Solomon's was a temple, just as the tabernacle was a temple, your body is now the temple, the dwelling place of the presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit. Wow. Telling you when that hits you, when that hits you, self-image issues, That's why Paul writes, if God's for us, See, he's not just for us in heaven. He's for us in you. He's come as far as he can go. If God's for us, who can be against? See, when that becomes real to you, fear goes out the window. You don't have to go get Jesus and and get him to wake him up on the back of the boat. He's in you. Just waiting for you to believe it and exercise it and step out in it. Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them even as you loved me. All right. That's where we all are now. Now, you may not be walking in that yet, but that's where the church is now in this story we've been going through. Now, in order to... That's the foundation for what we're going to talk about. In order to go to what we're going to talk about, we have to introduce a concept, an idea, which if you've been reading your Bible, especially the Gospel of John, you've seen these words used over and over again. We're going to take some time to explain what they mean. There are several words that have a meaning. You'll see fellowship, communion, sharing. Another term that's sometimes used is baptized. The moment we think of here baptized, we think of water. And it does apply to that. But it means so much more than that. The word baptized in Greek is baptized, which comes from a word that was used to describe the process of dyeing wool, changing a color. They would take white wool and they would take it over to a vat of dye, whether it's red or black or purple, and they would lower the, the, that, white, that linen cloth down into it. And as they lowered the linen cloth down into it, what happens? The linen fibers absorb the dye so that when it comes up out of the water the linen fibers and the dye are now fused together and they're one. So there are places where Paul talks about being baptized into Christ and although he may be referring to the water baptism, what he's talking about is being joined to Christ. There's so many places where the Bible talks about us being in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, 
joined to, fused to Christ. He's a new creature. And all things have passed away and all things have become new. In Him, we live and move and have our being. You've been joined. See, I used to think when Paul talks about being seated with God in heavenly places, and I've used this example before, but because of the TV, I'll do it up here. I used to think that, you know, there's God the Father seated here. There's Jesus sitting here. Then there's Peter sitting here. Then there's Paul sitting here. Then there's James sitting here. And then all the rest of the people that have come on before me. And then there's, you know, Martin Luther. And then there's all the rest of these. And somewhere way over there, over on the horizon is John. This John. Yeah, I'm seated with him in heavenly places. And it dawned on me one day, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that when I received Christ, I was joined to him. So the Father's sitting here, and Jesus is sitting here, and I'm sitting here because I'm in Jesus. I'm joined to him. Now, the word fellowship and the word communion, most of the time in the Bible, when it's talking about the communion of the saints, and in fact, let's look at a, let's look at a scripture and I'll show it to you. Let's look at, um, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 9, God is faithful. Isn't that nice to know? God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, in Christian ease, Christian vernacular, fellowship kind of has developed the meaning of hanging out together. Usually around food. just kind of enjoying one another's company. And that's true. But if that's all you think fellowship means, you're going to miss the power of what the Bible tells us God has done for us. The fellowship of Christ, that word is Greek, koinonia. K-O-I-N-O-N-I-N-A. Koinonia. It literally means a sharing together or being in common with. The classical shorthand definition that's used by preachers is fellowship means two fellows in the same ship. (laughs) (laughs) But what it means is a sharing of something together because you are the same thing together. It's two becoming one. The Bible talks about marriage in this terms. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cling to, be cleaved to, be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one. Two individuals shall be one. In that first marriage, God took one man, Adam, and divided that one man into two beings, Adam and Eve. But from that point on, God says every other marriage is going to be the opposite process. He's going to take two individuals and combine them together in one. See, the, 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 they were still one. 
Because Adam looked at her and says, after he said, wow. Adam said, that's bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He was acknowledging, she may be in a different form now, but that's still me. We're still one, even though she's got her own will now, her own way of looking at things, her own way of talking about things, her own manners, but she's still me and I'm still her. And so when marriage comes in God's eyes under God's covenant, He takes two individuals and He supernaturally joins them together so that those two individuals now become one. And the real fun is how to, learning how to live that out. That's why we have a marriage seminar on Saturday to help you learn how to live that out because your expectations of what that meant are undoubtedly different than what you've experienced. In the same way, this is why marriage is so sacred to God. It's a covenant union. The essence of blood covenant is a union, a combining together of identity and of everything. And when you came to Christ... You were joined to Him and He was joined to you. So the word fellowship, communion, sharing is the word koinonia, which means now two indifferent ones are sharing life together because they've been joined together. Are you with me so far? All right, we're walking slowly through this because we're going to change how we think about some things. Okay. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. Paul is ending this letter. And he ends it with these words. You know, it's really easy sometimes to, to read the end of the, the beginning of his letters and the ends as just a nice sentiment. But listen to these words. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does John chapter 1 says? It also says it in 1 John. It says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God took on flesh so we could now see Him. And we beheld His glory even as of the only begotten of Son, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to display the grace of God in a form that people could see it. So Paul's writing to the Corinthians and saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ... The second one he talks about is God the Father and the love of God. The Bible says in 1 John, God is love. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 tells them, all the gifts of the Spirit mean nothing if they're not motivated by love. Why? Because they're not expressing God because God is love. If you do something and it's not motivated by love, it counts for God as nothing because it's not communicating or representing Him because He is Love. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. So he's talking about key aspects of the members of the Trinity. God the Son demonstrates the grace of God. God the Father is love. 
Now, what's the predominant aspect of the third person of the Trinity? And the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Now, what is that about? What is the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? I've heard this taught. That means talking to the Holy Spirit and kind of hanging, using fellowship in that terms. And that's fine to do, but this is so much more powerful than that. Now, all we've talked about leads up to this. We've talked about God dwelling in tabernacles, God dwelling in the tabernacle of Jesus' body, and now God dwelling in us. We've talked about God wanting to fill us with all of His fullness. We've talked about, or we haven't, the Bible talks about God being one with us and us being one with God. Let me ask you a question. Sitting there in your blue seat, looking at your dress or your suit or whatever it is that you're wearing, knowing what you look like, feeling this body, how in the world, or out of this world, how can I be joined to God? How can I possibly... I understand the theology, I understand the concept, but we want to learn to walk this out so that it's not just something we talk about in here on Sunday morning and Wednesday night, but it's something you walk in and live in 24 hours a day because that's what Jesus is talking about. Where the rubber meets the road. How is it possible for God to be joined to me? That's the role of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5 says there's three parts to us. There's a body. You know which part that is. That's the part you had to clean up and get here today. There's your soul, which is your mind, your will, and your emotions. It's basically your personality. It's the part of you you're conscious of. It's the part of your wife you're conscious of. It's the part of people you're conscious of. But there's a third part to you, which is the critical part to you. It's your spirit. Your spirit is your nature. It's what you are. And when you come to Christ, this is the part of you that she changes. He takes the old nature out of you, which was rebellious against God, and he births in you. Just as he birthed in Mary's womb, the spirit of God conceives in you a new spirit. And just as that being that was conceived in Mary's womb was a child of God, in the same way because it's God's spirit conceiving in a new nature in you, that new nature is also a child of God. And a child of God has the nature of its father. So God conceived in you his nature. That's how you were born again. The word again in John 3 doesn't just mean, it means both a second time and it also means from above. It has both meanings. So you were born a second time, but this time that birth came from, was initiated and conceived in you from above. And therefore, just as with the words to Mary, that one that was conceived in you is a child of God. So it's understandable that that seed conceived in you would have God's nature. That is your new reborn spirit. 
But we're going to see later on that God says, not only will I take out of them a heart of stone and put in them a heart of flesh, but then I will take my spirit and I will put my spirit in. Now let's go back and get a basic thing. We won't probably finish this today, but we'll lay the foundation. The very nature of spirit is it can't come into contact with flesh. Because flesh, our, our body, is of this material realm. You, all, you understand that? That's the part of you that came from the earth and will eventually go back to the earth one way or another. That's your earth suit. That's your house in this realm. And your soul is in you, but you are a spirit being. So you live in two different realms. Your body is of this material realm. But your spirit being is of the other realm, which is the spirit realm. So you're a hybrid. Your body's of this realm, and your spirit is of the spirit realm. And as we learned when we studied renewing the mind, your soul is the bridge between the two. But we're not concerned with that right now. Now the Bible tells us in 1 John, it tells us in John chapter 4 verse 24, that God is spirit. He's not flesh. That's why Jesus had to put on flesh. Because He didn't have flesh. God is spirit. Don't get consumed with body because he can, there's a spirit body and then there's an earthly body. Romans 15 and 1 Corinthians talk about that, that we've got it, this mortal must put on immortal. This body you've got wearing now can't get into heaven. You've got to leave it here. That's why Paul says, I'm struggling whether to stay here or go, but I realize for me it's better to go because I get to put off this suit which gives me all the trouble and I get to put on a new suit which gives me no trouble at all. This body, you're what, you can't take this to heaven. Because it's of this realm. It can't get in there. That's why when Christ comes back, if we're still around, He's going to instantly change this body into one of those bodies. Because this body can't get in there. So you've got to be willing to let go of this body if you want to get in there. So start practicing now. Make it a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. So God, because God is spirit, God can't commune with your flesh. Because He's spirit, and they're from two different realms. Now, He can supernaturally do things, but on the ordinary course of things. God's not mind. He's not a mental process. He's not a rational thinking mind. He's spirit. So God normally doesn't communicate directly with your mind. This is where most of us struggle. We try to understand God with our mind, and we just read, he says, that you may, be, that, 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 that you may know the love of Christ that what? Passes understanding. That's beyond your mind's understanding. The next verse says, Now unto him who is able to do exceeding and abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. 
See, one of the things God's working on me, he says, son, you've been raised all your life, not just in your family, but in your professional training. You've been led, raised to, to deal with things by understanding them. And my wife goes, mm. <laughs> And if you can't understand it, you don't accept it. But my word says, you don't receive things by understanding them. You receive things by believing them in your heart. That's why Proverbs 3, 4, and 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding when it comes to the things of God. Now, doing your math homework tonight, you need to lean to your understanding. If you're, if you're a student... Don't say, I'm not going to study. I'm trusting God with all my heart. No, you need to study with your mind because that's not in the kingdom of God. So unless God does something supernaturally, we don't commune with Him mind to mind. It's not like Dr. Spock, a mind meld or whatever it was he did. That's new age stuff. John 4.24 says, God is Spirit. So here's what we're leading up to. We're talking about how does this union take place that Jesus prayed for? I mean, if he prayed for it, it has to have happened. How does it take place? It takes place your spirit being joined together to his spirit. I'm going to show you an example of this. This is how God communicates with us. Let's look quickly over at First um, Corinthians chapter 2. I talked about this earlier, but I want you to see it. First Corinthians 2. Verse 9. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the hearts of man all that God has prepared for those who love Him. In other words, God has things for us we don't recognize, we don't see. They're beyond our mind's ability to imagine. So does that mean all that God has prepared for those who love So God's prepared things because He loves us, but we can't receive them because we don't see them, we don't understand them. They're, they're things our minds can't grasp. And our natural heart just can't get around because it's so big, it's so wonderful, it's so glorious, it's so good, it's so God is so good. That's why Paul prayed that you would understand the breadth and length and height and depth and to know by experience the love of God that passes understanding. Just to know how much He loves you has to go beyond your mind because your mind's not big enough to grasp that. But there's a part of you that is or He wouldn't say we could do it. But look at this, verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. This verse says that in your daily communion with God, your walk with God, the Spirit of God in you is God's Spirit. And He is actively searching the depth, this is incredible, the depths of God's heart to pull up 
His love for you, to pull up what He wants in your life, to pull up His plans for you, to pull up out of the depths of God's heart. And then because He's in you, He will show them directly to your spirit so you can begin to receive them and grasp them. That's His assignment in you. Part of his responsibility is to seek the depths of God's heart and his intentions toward you. And then, because he's in you, he can show them to you. He can't show them to your mind. He has to reveal them to your spirit because God's spirit and your spirit are of the same realm and they're fused and joined together. Romans chapter 8. We'll look at the other side of this. learning anything? Verse 26. In the same way, that refers to our inability to do things. Most of the first part of this chapter is talking about our inability to do things in our own strength. It talks about how we couldn't save ourselves because our own efforts were based on the efforts of our flesh and our flesh couldn't do it. The harder, and you know what I mean, you know what it means, the harder you tried to be good, the worse you mess up. Well, you're not alone. Paul did the same thing, Romans chapter 7. But he says, what you couldn't do because of the weakness of your flesh, because your flesh wasn't strong enough, because in your own efforts, you weren't strong enough to be righteous enough, but you couldn't do, God did for you. Sending his own son in the likeness of flesh, he condemned his sin, your sin in his flesh. The second verse says, first verse says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of light, the law of the Spirit who brings life for those who are in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, what you couldn't do for yourself, God did for you and He did it when He put His Spirit in you. So this whole chapter is talking about God's grace, what God did for you that you couldn't do yourself because of your infirmities and your weaknesses. God did them for you and the agent of doing it in you was the Spirit of God in you. All right, with that background, look at verse 26. That's what likewise means. Likewise, the Spirit also. So in addition to the other things He's helped us with, He also helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray as we ought. Why don't we know what we should pray? Because the issues are in the spirit realm, and you can't see them with your natural understanding. See, we're so quick to pray about situations with our own understanding of the issues. Jesus didn't do that. Did you ever notice... There were people with the same kind of infirmity. Sometimes he cast the demon out. Sometimes he laid hands on them. Sometimes he spoke to them. Sometimes he spit on them. Sometimes he told them to go do things. He didn't do the same thing every time. He didn't have some cookie-cutter approach to prayer. Why? Because he was led by the direction of the Father in him because the Father in him knew what the issue was and how to deal with it. So we don't know what the problem is because when it's a sp in the spirit realm, we can't see it with our eyes. We can't understand it with our mind. But there is one who can. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what he's talking about here. So we don't know what, literally it says in the Greek, we don't know the what to pray as we ought. That's the infirmity or the weakness we have here. So are we left 
Does this struggle and guess? No. For we don't know what we should pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. The beginning of that verse says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. I've told you this before. That word helps there in Greek is a compound of three different words which combined together says to take hold together with you against that situation. So whatever the issue is that you're praying about, the Spirit of God has been given to you to take hold with you against that. Kind of like if your car is stuck in the snow and you got out and your wife's in there got their foot on the accelerator and you're behind trying to move this car and it's not getting anywhere and all of a sudden the tow truck comes up behind you and just eases up with the bumper and just comes together with you to move it out. Now he doesn't do it in place of you. He takes hold together with you against that situation. And notice how he does it. We're talking about this union. Notice how he does it with groanings that cannot be uttered. Look at verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Now, we saw back in 1 Corinthians 2 that the Spirit of God, who's in us, God's Spirit, searches God's heart to find out what God has for us. This verse says that God, who wants to know what's in our desire, He has the Spirit in us who's searching our hearts to communicate it back to God. So it's a perfect communication. God's Spirit in you always knows God's will in every situation, and God's Spirit in you is able to communicate to the Heavenly Father what your desire is in your heart to Him perfectly. Well, where's the problem? The problem is from here to here. Because now what happens is you, in order to respond and act this out, your mind has been given to you to begin to sense and understand. what. See, what happens is God's Spirit speaks directly to your spirit. Perfect communication. Your spirit then begins to give you understanding or direction, but that now has to come to you and your body through your mind, and your mind will only grasp it to the extent that it can understand it, to the extent that your will is open to do it. It's affected by all kinds, especially affected if all we've been putting into as the stomach turns... Just putting the world's stuff in us, we're so conscious of the, of, the, of the carnal world around us, we're not sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit in you. And it's God trying to get your attention and show you things. I was awake for two to three hours last night just praying, just awake. God was talking to me. And He showed me some some of the simplest things and I saw that and said how could I not see that before at some point I'll share with you the simplest thing I'm like, that's just like a jewel and it's right there I've been reciting this for years and I'm seeing now it means something at a level it's just so obvious how come I couldn't see it before 
because the word of God, the words of God are spirit and they are life. They're not concepts and principles. They may have some in there, but they're spirit and they're life. And the author of that book is in you. Most of what I teach you, the understandings I have, I haven't read in other books. I've read in one book. But I have the author of it in me. So I ask him, what does it mean? And expect him. Well, he's in you just as much as he in me. It's not just because I'm a pastor. He's just as much in you. We're going to end here because the point here, because then we're going to go on from here. The point I want you to see is the communion, the fellowship that we have with Jesus. The communion, the fellowship we have with God is literally the joining together of His Spirit and our spirit. The two are one. That's what, and by the way, that's what makes us one with each other. It's not the color of our skin. It's not our age. It's not our ethnic background. This church is a perfect proof of that. This is, a bo- this is the body of Christ here because what joins us together is the same spirit that lives in me lives in you. And there's only one spirit. I'll give you a clue. True worship comes out of learning how to enjoy and express this union with God. And we'll go there next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word and the power of your word. Father, tonight, today, for some of us, we've heard things we've never heard before. It may be hard for our minds to grasp it yet. But Lord, we prayed in the beginning that this was not for our minds to get new understanding, but for your spirit to deposit things down in our hearts. The truth that you want to fill us with yourself. The truth that you dwell in us by your spirit and that your spirit is joined to us by our spirit. The truth that we have perfect fellowship, communion, union with you that the prayers that Jesus prayed back in that garden have been answered in our lives by the Holy Spirit. But Father, precious few of us have really recognized this, received it, and walked in it yet. And yet, Father, I believe for where you're calling us, you have to reveal this to us and make it clear. So again, I ask you to open the eyes of our understanding we would truly see the hope of your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. For this we thank you in Jesus' name.